peace to uh, Fly Fidelity for fucking with Bob Kaufman and, um, you know, his heir apparent, myself. Um, you know, Ruby Ott is rocking with you from uh, Nashville, Tennessee to, to Cardiff, Wales. And there and back again, and it ain't no accident, you feel me? Uh, forever and always. Um, blessed and protected by the red, black, and the green with a key uh, at the crossroads. Uh, we'll see you, you know, when the two hands meet at 315. God bless. First, First I, I say, say, what, what we're going to do. Then, then you say, say, I don't know, what do you want to do? What we're going to do, what you want to do? You're gonna dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You wanna get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. Incredible content for incredible times. Welcome to episode 20 with special guest Rap Ferrara. On this episode, we speak to the artist formerly known as Milo about his latest release, Bob's Son, his ode to the legendary poet Bob Kaufman. We also speak to Kelly Lee Blackwell, Bob Kaufman's niece, who joins us to remember the legacy, life, and work of one of the most powerful and original poets of the 20th century. listening to Bob's son now. Play Bob's son. So Bob's son is the name of your latest project available now on all streaming services. How much has Bob Kaufman inspired you to go beyond your form and navigate your identity and existence creatively? Can you talk about your first time being exposed to Bob Kaufman's poetry and the impact he's had on the decisions you've made creatively uh yeah i was first put on to bob kaufman's poetry uh in uh what it must have been 2013 on one of my first rap tours uh older mc put me on to him and uh i was just struck by really how musical this cat's writing is you know a lot of you know, people try to figure out what the difference is between poetry and rap, and I'm not smart enough to know the difference, but, you know, sometimes there is a difference, sometimes there isn't a difference. With Bob Kaufman, I was struck at how, when I was reading his work, I felt like I could hear the beats. I felt like it was like reading raps, you know? I, I just was really taken by his economy, and, you know, the the way he's thinking and expressing himself and the like again the time the timing of the words physically structurally in the pieces he he's working on like it just reminded me of hip-hop you know kind of like a punchline in hip-hop or whatever like he's got punchlines he's got bars <laughs> mm. um 
And so it was Bob Kaufman. There's uh, Hank Dumas is another poet who's like that for me. Um, Yehuda Amakai, uh, June Jordan, Rita Dove. There's like a whole little menagerie of poets that I rock with who I think are on that level. I took Bob Kaufman out of all. I could have made it any of Rita's son, June's son, Yehuda's son. You know, I could have any of the Hank's son. Any of those poets are my predecessors, are my ancestors. With Bob Kaufman, I felt a certain camaraderie with him because he's like Creole. He's like mixed. You know, I mean, he's black, but like, you know, he's light skinned black. People don't know what he was. He from all over. He had a whole life nobody knew about, which I feel I, I strongly identify with that. Like nobody knows my life story. I just be a traveling weirdo. And that's kind of him, you know, his early merchant marine habits and shit like that before getting into poetry. And then even getting into poetry and the scene he was a part of, not really like upholding him or respecting him, even though he, in my opinion, typifies the beat experience. I empathize with that, you know, like I feel like with art, rap, underground, hip hop, whatever you want to call it. It's kind of like that with me where I'm like the ghost in the machine, like niggas don't really fuck with me, but everybody know I'm on my shit. And that's how I felt about what it must have been like for Bob Kaufman. So there's just a lot that I identify with him. And the fact that unlike most poets I admire, even the best ones, you know, commercial success is important to a lot of people. And to me, not to say like, I don't want to eat, but it's just not at the top of my list. With Bob, he's just on some other shit, you know, like just totally doesn't give a fuck, doesn't care if he's homeless, doesn't care at all. And I think that too, right? I idealize him. I idealize that position of the poet, of the poet as someone who who lives on their own terms no matter what, even if that means not having a home. You know, there's some things you don't compromise, and especially when it comes with your art and just the whole lifestyle of being a poet. And I could wax on that forever. I feel like I've already talked too long at length. But like, not at all, not at all. We're going to get deeper into the yeah. legend and myth that's Bob Kaufman. But let's talk more about the rollout for this project, Bob's Son, which premieres at a virtual coffee shop. It is a scope and a scale to this album that really sets you up to feel immersed in what you're celebrating on this album. Did you always know you wanted to approach the project like this? Um, well, my process is weird. I won't say I always knew, but I take things very slow on purpose and it drives a lot of people crazy. Like I know I put out a pretty consistent stream of music, but from my collaborators point of view, you know, I might sit on records for a year, two years. I might, you know, I, I let shit slow cook. And with Bob's son, I had it done for a while, but I didn't know what to do with it. And something was just telling me like, just hold it. Just hold it. Just sit on it. You know, like I had it all done, ready to go. But I was like, I don't know. Someone's just telling me not to put it out. And I actually had it done before Purple Moonlight Pages was done. Oh. And uh, But I was like, nah, let me just sit on it. So then I finished Purple Moonlight. Then I had both of them done at the same time. I was like, oh, shit, now I'm sitting on some goodies. And I was like, well, I want Purple Moonlight to be my first. And again, I don't know why. Just some feeling, some feeling that Bob's son needed to be guarded and protected a cat who I met many years ago, kind of like with you, man. Forgot I met this cat, and he just popped back up again, and we start building. He's like, by the way, like in my free time, I, I make 3D habitats in virtual reality. I was like, huh? 
<laughs> yeah, I'd be like, what do you mean? Free time, you just sculpt fucking virtual space. And the homie was like, oh, yeah, like anything, any virtual anything I could make. And it was like, huh? And, and could it play music and shit? Oh, yeah, it could play music, whatever. Like, that'd be easy. I was like, oh, get the fuck out. So then I sent my homie, this is Alex Bowman, or Mars Bowman, rather, that I'm talking about. So I sent Mars the record, and I was like, so this is record I made. It's really weird. And it's this homage to a weird poet who really never got to do any readings. He, he basically is just like a cafe poet, like which is everything I aspire to be in this lifetime. So could you make a cafe and make it kind of like mist where it's like there's no people. You don't know where ever, ever anyone is. You don't know why they're gone. All you It's like being an alien. You know, you just landed and there's this place and you walk in and there's cigarettes still lit. There's croissants on the table. There's coffee and shit. This is a great cafe, but where are all the people? And then you notice this record is playing. And uh, yeah, again, the homie Mars was like, oh, yeah, I can do that. And I think this was right when COVID started. And so I was like, cool. And then I never thought about it again. I was like, well, I'm sure they're full of shit. I'll never hear from them again. And moving on, <laughs> you know, like most stuff in music. Uh, but then the homie was dead serious and started sending me updates and prototypes. And I'll never forget the first link they sent me of the cafe that worked on my phone with the movement. And I think I might have shed a tear. I was just so blown away that somebody wanted to work with me who had that level of skill and talent. And I'll say Mars Bowman is a dream collaborator. That person is a fucking genius, can do anything, visualize anything, has a great work ethic, a great spirit, a great drive, just a, a great, great, great artist. And I'm so honored that they wanted to work with me, that I got to work with them because the cafe to me is integral to this album. Yeah. And it, it really, uh, it just couldn't, I don't, again, just being in sync, I guess. I don't know why. I, I didn't know COVID was going to happen. I didn't know we couldn't tour, but being able to create a virtual space for people to go listen to a record during a pandemic. Right one of the coolest things I've been able to do as an artist. And I'm just so, so happy that um, my path interacted or intersected with Mars Bowman, who, who made that cafe happen. So where does this project begin in terms of music? Is there one track that established a tone and feeling for what would shape this album and, and what it would sound like? Where does, and when does the concept for Bob's son musically become a thing? Um, no, there was never no one song. Um, I knew I wanted to make this record from the jump. I've been sitting on the idea for a long time. And I've got a lot of ideas for albums that I'll just simmer on. You know, I just, like right. I said, I sip it. You like and to so meditate this, on fins. You have to. You have to digest stuff because that's when the deeper meanings come. You know, you right. might have a good idea. It might be a great idea. But if it's a truly great idea, then there's no rush. Taking your time will only improve it. And if it's a whack idea, then you're going to find out in time. And so it's a win-win, you know, it's like anything you have to rush as an artist. For me, I typically I shy away from it. I don't like that energy. There's like a desperation to it. It's like, I don't want to be a part of anything that has to come out immediately. Like that's, and I'm not editing, you know, I'm not, I'm not like working on this thing all the time. I just literally let it sit um, because it, I don't know, it just feels respectful. But anyway, with this record, um, shit was going left in my life. Uh, and I knew I was about to have to leave Maine, which is like my exile in paradise. You know, that's what Maine is to me. It's like being in 
being in exile, but it's paradise. Like, it's like, damn, it ain't nothing out here. But it's like, <laughs> but why would you want anything to be out here? You know, it's like, ah, oh, it's just the best place to get away. And I knew that um, I've been there a couple of years and my life was kind of not going how I wanted to. And I was going to have to go back into the real world. So and so I have a record store up in Maine and uh, I took about, I think, all of August. And I just did like basically a lock in. And I mean, you know, I'd wake up, tend to my son, do all that shit, kiss my mama or whatever, and then go to the shop every day from probably 10 to 4 so I, I guess nothing that crazy, but, you know, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. and just work on rhymes and shit. And I had all my whole crew up, Ruby, I, everybody was up there at the time. Eldon was out from London. Um, Dev was up there, SB. All my all my niggas was up there. Uh, Randall, everybody. So I'm just like, yo, uh, you know, getting all the energy of my homies and just funneling it into this record. And so I just tinker on shit every day. I was writing rhymes every day. While I'm making this record, we're also working on 37 Gems, uh, Rubiat is. So, like, I'm writing verses and I'm just picking, like, is this a Rubiat verse or is this for Bob's son? I don't know, you know, but I'm just on fire, dog. I just, I'm just, like, we're in the gym just dunking on each other, just having a blast. Like, it was so effortless making that record. Um, you know, at this point, I've had to shop a couple years. I've got a working studio in there. I got massive speakers every single record i could ever want to sample i got all my shit set up just how i want it um so yeah i was just locked in the zone and it, it came together really quickly i was able to make that record really quick i mean i i went to the shop to work on music every day for a month but that album probably just took about two weeks to write and record and then i spent probably another two weeks trying to mix it and i hated my mixes for it so I just let it sit for a while. And then Eldon and I went and did some shows all around America. Those are the uh, Rap Forever, we'll Rap Forever shows. And we were just hitting big cities, like not, no, no, no small dates, just flying in, doing big city dates, just stunting. For me, anyway, for indie rap, you know, indie rappers don't do yeah. shit like that. They got to drive, fucking play all the little markets. But this is the first time for me. I'm just hitting big cities again. No no driving. We flying into every show. I'm like, damn, this shit feels nice. <laughs> um, so I just let that shit simmer while Eldon and I went to work. You know, we just, yeah, we just went to work. We played our shows, got the bag. Um, it was actually the last time I seen my grandfather was doing them shows. Wow. We played Chicago and I got to bring Eldon uh down down to my town and you know go and meet my family and shit and uh those are really really special times to me and then we went to la and kenny i brought the record up to kenny and i was like man i'm struggling to mix this shitty ass album i made <laughs> and he was like oh bro mix it at my house and i was like oh hell yeah thank you and that blew my mind that kenny would let me use his gear in his home studio and he has really nice stuff. Like Kenny's a real professional yeah. and he just let me use all his shit to mix it. So then I was like, oh, this is done. Sent it to Kev. He mastered it. So I'd say, I don't know, from August to then October when Kev mastered it. And I knew it was Bob's son the whole time. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I had picked out samples from different beat poets and shit a long time ago. Um, yeah, just all clicked together. Easy.
I listened to this album, and one of the most striking things about this project is that, of course, every almost every song starts with one of your verses or starts with one of Kaufman's verses and then ends with the end verse. What was the process, or rather was the process, of seeping into this, you know, spirit of Kaufman so much so that you can't tell where you and he begin? Was it always as effortless as it sounds, as what we hear? Absolutely, because I really just read a lot of Bob Kaufman and the stuff that like when I'm working on my own music, I have to like not do that. You know, like I'll be like, oh man, this is my record. Like I can't put hella Bob Kaufman shit in my song, you know, but with this record, it was like, no, that's the point of this album is to just bleed our shit together, like make it one, make it like this man's spirit is with me right now, guiding me. I really tried hard to... Look, like I went to City Lights, like I walked around there just like spitting poetry. Really just honor him again because I traveled the world as a poet, as a free black man, spitting fucking crazy ideas that people would give me money for. It was really important to me to tap into that. It was effortless, man. There was no no stretch. I read that shit. I read that stuff so much. I have half those poems memorized anyway. It, it's really easy. Like, yeah, it almost felt like cheating, you know, because it was just so natural and fun and such a like freeing exercise it didn't feel like um you know sometimes making albums is real work that that never felt like it you've had this time you know in space to sit with Kaufman's work for so long what is it that sticks with you most about Kaufman's work personally I love the absurdity of his shit I'm really into the absurd and I'm not great necessarily incorporating it in my work but um, the absurdity of life and the absurd as a concept motivate me tremendously. And um, yeah, I, I don't know another poet like Bob who's just so in touch with that. Right. And and for me, in my own personal life, I struggle sometimes. I lose track. Like I know this life is an illusion, but I sometimes forget. And I sometimes am playing for keeps and I'm taking I'm taking the illusion seriously like a dummy. And like Bob, I, I read a lot of Bob because he's just like, hey, you dummy, taking life serious again, huh? <laughs> 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 oh, man. And again, from a cat who like by all means lived a way harder life than me. It was just like, fuck this shit. It ain't nothing. Frinky little MCs must get this. Frinky little MCs must get this. Frinky little MCs must get this. And that's the way it is. I'm back up on my oatmeal cookies. They real old rookies. Lousy blues, lose lookies. Few snook me. Hull of balloon, full of cashews. Bullets never as cool. Never slid the tassel left. Didn't have to impress yourself. Read the 29th be attitude. When one decides to be attitude, longitudinal accelerants, various celebrants, soul folks noodling excellence. Never not woodshedding. Break the huddle on three. Guess I'll if we're talking about elevation and you being elevated as an artist as well as a man by Kaufman's work. How do you think Kaufman's work has encouraged you to engage in discourse on the experience of being a human, understanding older concepts and producing new meanings? Damn. I mean, I guess it's it's helped me because it, it, it lets me know that even when I'm not trying to do that work, I'm doing that work. So it doesn't... Right. 
it's automatic. You don't got to worry about it. You don't have to pour over the meaning. It doesn't have to make sense to you necessarily right now. There's a lot of stuff because I made this record where I've been able to see how his process, I think, get glimpses of his process, you know, and it's informed mine even beyond this record because I'm not necessarily as afraid, maybe I don't want to say afraid, but as reticent to use, um, to use things I don't understand in my own music. Uh, you know, like before I, I would really not be into that, but now um, I'm, I'm understanding a bit more how time isn't linear and how a poem can be a letter to yourself at many times in your life, you know, and yeah, just, just the technology, the technology right. in, in writing uh, poems and songs this way. Uh, right. Yeah. What have you learned from him, you know, in terms of distinction and distinction needing to be measured by an artist's donation more than their duration? What's he taught you about stretching your mind as much as your style? Oh, that's gangster. Um, well, I feel like more than anyone, Bob Kaufman has taught me that if this is really what I want to do, be a poet, if I, if I consider myself that, if I live that, then I have to be prepared to live that no matter what, and no matter the consequences, no matter the judgments, no matter the misunderstandings. I have to be prepared to live that. And I will say that as a man and as a father, there are some things that I can't do that Bob Kaufman did. You know, there's just certain things that how I was raised, I'm never going to be like an uninvolved parent. You know, I'm never going to be homeless. I'm never going to, you know, that's just like, that's not in my spirit. But I admire that there um, there have been artists who just don't give a fuck. And I know that might be weird to say, and I can see a lot of people, you know, might judge a cat like him for how he lived his life, but I admire it. I think that shit takes a lot of nerve and a lot of heart to live like that and to be that at that time when no one really was paying much attention, um, just because, you know, you really believe in what you're doing. sitting in a cell with a view of evil parallels, waiting thunder to splinter me into a thousand me's. It is not enough to be in one cage with one self. I want to sit opposite every prisoner in every hole. Doors roll and bang, every slam a finality. Fingerprints left lying on black, inky gravestones. Noises of pain seeping through steel walls crashing reach my own hurt. I become part of someone forever. Painter, paint me a crazy jail. Mad watercolor cells. Poet, how old is suffering? Write it in yellow lead. God, make me a sky on my glass ceiling. I need stars now to lead through this atmosphere of shrieks and private hells. Entrances and exits in, out, up, 
down the civic seesaw. Hear me now. Hear me now. Always, Always hear. hear. Somehow. Somehow. The stories and stuff, like, I went out of my way. It's funny. Um, what's the name? There's a documentary on him called uh, When I Die, I Won't Stay Dead, I think, or something to that effect. And uh, That's right. It's on Criterion now. But when I made this, Dope. Criterion didn't have a streaming. And there was no way to watch this documentary when I made this movie or when I made this album. So I bought a license to screen this documentary. Wow. Just to be able to see it. And that shit ain't cheap, dog. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I, I, I can imagine. I really did that because I was like, so like I said, just deep on my research of this man. And I was like, yo, it's a good watch. You know, it's not like a crazy documentary. There's not a lot. Like he wasn't famous. He wasn't wealthy. You know, there's no one documenting him during the time. Nobody gave a fuck. Even the people who should have gave a way bigger fuck. I mean, I, it's like cool that he had a publisher, City Lights, and all that shit was rocking with him. But you watch the documentary, and it's like them niggas let his shit sit forever. They whole shit burnt down by the grace of God. His poetry alone was left unscathed, and then motherfuckers published it. You know what I mean? Like some a miracle event had to happen before motherfuckers understood that, like, yo, this nigga's in sync with the cosmos. Like, <laughs> um, and just yeah, like I, I think especially at that time the beat shit like when you learn about the beats and the beatniks and jack kerouac and alan ginsburg and all these characters you know and then you see bob kaufman and you're just like oh so he was really just talking about himself you know bob kaufman came up with beat and he did not mean them other motherfuckers so how much is this project as much a statement about myth not being about what's happened in the past and as much about, you know, being a reality for what happens to people all of the time and recognizing and rhyming about a whole human experience. I think that the human experience, I mean, okay, we're in the digital era and right now we're encouraged to document ourselves and everything we do. But in reality, you know, the myth is what's going to outlive the document. Like that, you know, like, and, and to see yeah. Bob Kaufman is just owning that from the genesis. He's living his life like he's already dead. And it's just nuts. Like, just to be like, I'm going full myth because that's all that's ever going to fucking exist anyway. I'm, a, you know, like, just to even to, that's the ultimate cheat code. Like, you're hacking the system at this time. Even the supposed fucking liberal left poetry circle fuckheads aren't even really riding with you how they claim to be. You know, you you like he has no real allies in the game or out the game. What can he do as a poet? Like, what can you do that's meaningful? And it's it's like when Obi-Wan goes full force, you know, like Obi-Wan isn't dead. Obi-Wan became one with the force like that same shit <laughs> Like <laughs> became one with myth. And I um, I just think that's so important. I want Bob Kaufman to be like an American folk hero. You know, like the stories about him, like standing on the table, pissing on the cop, all this <laughs> stuff is so ill to me. Like getting arrested over a hundred times in one year. Like, what the fuck? Who is this guy? Like doing this shit in the 60s. 
doing this shit in the 50s, 60s, 70s, like in a time where it's nothing for a cop to just beat you mercilessly when you're in a black position, you know, and like just not giving a fuck, just going back every day, like every day. Uh-huh. <laughs> something's realer than this, than this fucking illusion. And to just commit to that, oh, there's so few artists on that level. <laughs> on that level. And like you say, dog, the myth just propels me. And it reminds me of what's more important than right now, you know, an artist is measured in their commercial capabilities. And that's just what is real. You know, even the underground cats. And it's like the thing that supersedes that even today in 2021 is myth. And like clout is like some weird fucked up piss version of myth, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like some bullshit. It's like a distraction, but like you don't want clout. You want myth, dog. And yeah, it's just a reminder. I'm, I'm so grateful Bob Kaufman existed. For sure. Could you talk about the significance behind ending the album with a track like Abominus Manifesto? Yeah, so it's we're in a very, you know, you know the times we live in. Everything is so political and uh, everybody wants a rapper, especially like myself, to make political statements that they can compress into, you know, tweets and posts and captions and shit. And I just like I refuse. And I see that in Bob Kaufman's work, too. Just an absolute refusal. Just like, look, I'm black. I make art. That's the statement, period. Fuck with my art. Like, if if you want me to say anything. And it's not going to just be, you know, please stop shooting me type songs. And I love that he answers, like, the political question by making his own shit. The, you know, abominism. Especially, like, he's living through the Red Scare and everything. And to go through, you know, such a bullshit witch hunt of people for quote unquote political reasons and you know again seeing that no side really cares about you and they're just going to use you as a fucking token anyway and just making your own shit abominism and that's kind of how i feel with ruby yacht and my career but also my life like i'm an abominist i'm not anybody to aspire to be i'm just some nigga off doing my own shit with my own powers and my own capabilities, making my own oatmeal cookies, you know? And I I just really, I wanted the takeaway of the record to be a meditation on freedom, on your freedom as a a fucking listener, as a participant, as a breathing entity, like you can make your own shit. You think of bombinism sounds stupid, fantastic. What, you know, make your thing, whatever. But that's the whole point. Like I don't, want an identity given to me anymore I'm, I'm so sick of that shit and i don't want to have to present my identity anymore i don't necessarily want an identity anymore i don't want to have to commit to anything and i'm i feel um that's an engine of abominism at least from my perspective well speaking of identity do you think the perception that people have had in the past about milo and who milo was as an artist did, did that have any impact on your ability to execute ideas as Rap Ferreira as an artist? Well, Milo shit was definitely limited. Um, the, my, my shit under my real name, Rap Ferreira, I mean, you can't tell me who I am. <laughs> but Milo, it was a construct that the audience was in on and 
you know, certain um, journalists were in on and other artists were in on. There was a lot of people in on the creation of Milo because it was happening in front of all of us in real time. Like, you know, I was just a kid who didn't even know anybody would take my mixtape seriously. And again, not like I blew up and got rich or nothing like that, but I got enough fans to be able to, you know, get a, make a little living off this shit early on. And um, yeah. that just happened again by being hella transparent and honest and just being like, yo, I'm in a dorm room. These are my first 10 t-shirts. Anybody want one? Like, you know, all that kind of shit all the way up to what it is today. And so because people have seen it from literally grassroots, they felt like they were stakeholders or some shit. Maybe they were. But uh, I was just really sick of that relationship <laughs> of people telling me what my music should sound like or could sound like or what they used to like or didn't like. You know, all that shit was just so passe to me. And when you make art under your real name, I realize that's why people make art under their real name, because you can't tell somebody that. You can only tell somebody that when you're talking about something is an object, like Milo is an object. But you can't talk to me about me like that, <laughs> you know, and like it, it just makes it different. And also, too, with, um, you know, creating under your real name, there's no uh, you just no longer have to think about identity. I've never had to think about my name. It was given to me. You know, I was born into this life. I don't know who the fuck I am. I'm just doing shit. But when you make a new stage name, you make an identity and you give it purpose and shape and all this other bullshit that again just does not interest me anymore um it's i think it's just a dead end for me as an artist and a waste of time so i, I want i just cut all that shit off bombiness manifesto the bombiness manifesto bomb coffee the bombiness manifesto Abominists join nothing but their hands or legs or other. Same. Abominists spit anti poetry for poetic reasons and frank. Abominists do not look at pictures painted by presidents and other poetic rhymes. We're talking about a very immersive project, aren't we, for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because my life was really just going in the shitter, dog. <laughs> and uh, it, it just it interested me some of the parallels between Bob and I at that time. They really interested me. And um, <clears throat> other artists like Lonnie Holly. Lonnie Holly's another big influence on that record. I haven't told anybody that. Sanford and Sons, the TV show Sanford and Sons, the artist Lonnie Holly, and then, of course, Bob Kaufman. But those are like big, big themes on that record. Lonnie Holly has a song. It might just be called Spec. Oh, man, that's one of the best songs ever. And he just, he sings... Uh, I'm a suspect till I'm a suspect, and like, duh, just like going through shit in Maine with the police and just all sorts of shit, dog, and just everywhere, always a fucking suspect, you know, and uh, I felt like that was Kaufman, too, and just his life, just always a suspect, and that's, you know, part of being a poet, and that's part of what you just got to live with, you know, you want to be a wizard, you want to have the cool magic powers, well, some people are going to fucking make fun of your robe, they're going to make fun of your beard, they're going to, you know, like, that's what with it, you want to be yeah. a fucking wizard, 
and I just had to take them lumps. <laughs> I just had to take them lumps. So, uh, yeah, it was very immersive for me and, and still is in many ways. Yeah. Well, going back to Abominus Manifesto, there's a line where you say, Abominus do not write for money, they write the money itself. Can you talk about the value of writing your own story and finding a freedom in the value of what you're rapping about? Um, I mean, I guess the value is it's keeping me, it's part of what's keeping me tethered to the planet. It's part of what's giving me drive, a reason to get out of my bed in the morning. It's, um, you know, for whatever, the way that I was brought up, the way my values and morals have been informed, you know, this seems like a good idea to me. So I'm just rocking with it. And, uh, you know, precedence is a big thing. You know, in, in like law and life, you know, precedence, it's a big deal. There's a precedence for this. And so I just, I felt good seeing that there's a precedence for somebody like me. Because right now, I feel so out of time, to use like the Nietzschean way of out of time. Not like I'm running out of time, but like I've been plucked out of the timeline. And I'm just not, right. I'm not in time. And I, I don't know what to do about that. And as I get older, I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> you know, um, some shit that used to just seem so cool. You know, when you're 19, you think, I want to be an indie rapper my whole life. Well, nigga, I'm about to be 30. I've been an indie rapper my whole life so far. <laughs> you know? Past right, 10 what years. What does that mean? You know, is this, what do I want to do? Who am I? Where do I want to take this shit? Is it enough to just, you know, write words down? I don't know. And um, there's not a lot of good examples for me right now to dialogue with about that. And Bob was just one who I think is one of the best because he, he's kind of just like, look, dog, this shit is a lie. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's going to go. It's going to go. Do you think about aging as an artist? Is that a conversation you have with, with yourself? Um, it's a conversation I have with myself because I'm a parent. So I'm watching my kid grow up, which means I be growing too. You know, and that's why it's just always, it's, it's prevalent these days because I'm watching my, my kid really burst forth right now. And I'm just stunned at what he's learning and doing in such a short amount of time. And I'm I feel obsolete. I'm like, damn, this this dude learned how to, he learned how to, you know, uh, hopscotch. He learned how to do the alphabet. He learned how to do, you know, add five and four all in a week. What did I do? What have I been on? And I know that sounds funny, but it's not to someone like me. <laughs> like, I start, I'm starting to be like, dog, I, and I'm not young. Like, I'm not picking shit up like that. And I want to be. So I'm, I don't know. I'm pushing myself. I've been learning guitar and doing all sorts of shit. But yeah, age is now all of a sudden on my mind to a degree as an artist because I, I want to have something to show for my time. Before, I, I was just fucking doing whatever. I don't know. I just, it wasn't a big deal. <laughs> but now it, it seems like one for whatever reason. What kind of conversations do you want Bob's son to evoke? Um... I don't know. I don't think about it. I don't think about that stuff. Um, because typically, 
the conversations happening around my work aren't the ones that I have about it or the ones that informed it or, you know, it'd be so different. So I've just learned, I guess, at this point, um, I'm just grateful that there are any conversations about it. If people are talking about my art. That's really fucking cool to me because I work in a medium that typically doesn't have dialogue about it. You know, uh, people just right. listen and they just right. either grunt their approval or grunt their disapproval. You know, songs are so, I was just talking to my homie Kayla about this. Uh, they asked me, is music the most disrespected art form? And I thought, well, dance must certainly be more disrespected, but music is close. <laughs> and like those two, dance mm. and music, when you choose a life in these art forms, people just fucking hate you. And and they don't like what you do because what you do seems so stupid to so many people, you know, and I get that. You know, If your life lacks music, I feel bad for you. It's just, you wouldn't understand. Um, so again, that anyone would have a conversation about my album or this album, yeah, that's a good sign to me. Even if it's not a conversation I would have, it's still a good sign to me because that means my music is defying the present moment we live in because music does not, it doesn't bring that about in people these days. It doesn't make people want to be different. It doesn't make them think. It doesn't make them talk. It doesn't make them feel. And they don't want it to. You know, like they get, they get fucking mad when you're on that now. So, yeah, that anyone resonates with it, I'm just very pleased. And I will continue to make more. Uh, even if it doesn't resonate, I will continue to make more. So right now it's nice to savor the moment. So let's talk about the future when you're making more music. Talk to me about running a storefront in your record label, Ruby Yacht. I mean, I don't. You know, I don't run them. I own them. Um, and they're my means of getting shit out into the world. But uh, there's nothing traditional about my label. There's nothing traditional about my record store. I'm not like at the desk. I'm not your friendly clerk. I'm not. It's it's not really for that. It's for like buying and selling of bulk vinyl used shit. It's basically my warehouse so I can sample shit at will. So I can just have the, the best stuff. Right. And a good hideout, you know, it's a, it's up in Maine. It's just great. Um, the label, I'm not running that for money. I'm not, I don't make money off any of the homies. I'm not, uh, I've never paid PR people. You know, we don't do that shit. It's just ways to get our shit out into the world. Um, but I don't, I don't have a plan for them. Neither of them has a budget. I don't like scheme on shit, uh, you know, much. I don't know. I just we just do what comes natural. Um, I put in a minimal effort with that stuff uh, because it doesn't seem wise to get overly invested in. Uh, I don't know business. <laughs> I don't want to be involved in anything that has to do with business. I don't. Of course, yeah. of course, it kills the passion. Yeah, and I mean for me, I have to because this is the only way I can be an artist. You know, I'm not the type of artist that people invest in or like fuck with like that you know like i get to be an artist as long as i make money <laughs> uh and so i found this balance for me that works and it i totally is irrational looks stupid to a lot of people i've had people who know business you know try to give me tips and stuff and it's like i just gotta do it my way it's all off feeling i just do everything from the gut you know um and it works 
insane asylums, sane asylums, USO canteens, kindergartens, and county jails. Obamians never compromised their reactionary philosophy. Obamianism's main function is to unite the soul with oatmeal cookies. Obamians love love, hate hate, drink drink, smoke smoke, live lives, die deaths. Obamianist writers write nothing, or they write and write. Obamianist poetry, in order to be completely understood, should be eaten. Except on fast days. Slow days and mornings of execution. Before completely objective mirrors, I have shot myself with my eyes. <laughs> but death <laughs> refused my advances. I have walked on my walls each night through strange landscapes in my head. My face is covered with maps of dead nations. My hair is littered with drying ragweed. Uh, I can't go out anymore. I shall sit on my ceiling. Would you wear my eyes? Hi, my name is Kelly Lee Blackwell. Um, I am the daughter of the late Robert Alexander Bumps Blackwell, and I am the niece of the late Bob Kaufman. And I'm here to discuss both gentlemen, their legacy and their impact on the culture in music and poetry. We just had a great conversation with an artist by the name of Rap Ferrero, whose latest mm -hmm. release is a note to Bob Kaufman, and it really channels his spirit. Does the growing legacy of your uncle ever surprise you? No, because I know his work is fantastic. And, um, you know, I know it just reaches, you know, everybody. And they're all just, just astonished at how great his work is. But I'm not surprised that they're so into it, you know, because we've been reading it since we were little. And... Um, you know, he's just, he's family to us in the sense that, you know, he's just our uncle, but also a renowned artist. But I'm not really surprised at how big he's growing. I mean, you know, I would be surprised if he wasn't. Right. Absolutely. What are your strongest memories of your uncle, the great Bob Kaufman? Well, I have one, and it's the only one. I met him in San Francisco when I was a young teenager. Um, it was in at his sister's house, my Aunt Olivia and her husband's house, Lester Peak, at their house. I was visiting LA. I was in I went to I was in Los Angeles and I took a trip to San Francisco. And he was there and he was at pretty much at the end of his life at that time. He didn't really speak very stickly. Um, but I introduced myself to him and I sat on a sofa and talked when I told him 
I said, I'm Marlene's daughter, Kelly. I'm your baby sister's daughter. And he really couldn't speak, you know, well and stuff. But I just told him how honored I was, you know, to finally meet him and to have read his work. And now I really get to meet him. And I said, that was just like a, a great moment for me. Were you as aware back then as you are now about the genius of his work at that point of meeting him? Always, because our family talked about him so much and everybody has his books. And it's just, a, you know, he's always a topic of conversation in our family and everybody loves him. And, you know, we've met people who have who um, met him and enjoyed his works and things like that. So, you know, always knew. He was spectacular. I was just, you know, just so excited to finally meet him after all those years. Amazing. For the people listening in UK who might not be, for whatever reasons, as versed on his legacy and the richness of that legacy, why do you think he's so frequently left out of the narrative and not spoken as often as other poets back then at that time? I think maybe in some sense he was just a tad, maybe a little radical to some extent. Right. I think... Um, racism also had a lot, to, had a part to play in it, you know, and maybe he wasn't really, to me, he wasn't really seeking the limelight. You know, I, I kind of believe that his work was for the work for people to read. And it wasn't a matter of how many accolades I'm going to get, you know, from my work. I want to put this out so people will have it, experience it, read it, love it, but not necessarily for you know, an award or this, that, and the other. But I really, he's forgotten so much and left out of so many things. I, I just don't, I, I, really, I don't think there's really, you can pinpoint something. But I think it's because maybe to some extent he was a little radical and the fact racism was just playing a very big part, you know, of him not being it. Yeah, yeah. And of course, he was unflinchingly uncompromising back then as a man, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Very much so. Let's talk about that authenticity and your experience with that authenticity. What is it that you think sticks out as, you know, best about his work? What is it that sticks with you most about his work? It was completely eclectic. It could go from one thing to another. To me, it was very honest and very open, sincere. When I read it, it's like I'm reading him. You know, I'm, I'm finding out what he's about you know, inwardly, since I didn't get a chance to really know him, know him. When I read his works, I get to find out who he, how, who, who he was. Yeah. And how did he expand and push your way of thinking personally? How did that work speak to you? <clears throat> well, you know, I come from a creative family. Yeah. A really creative family and talented you family. You do. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just <laughs> thank you and it's just you know whatever whatever my family's doing you know whether you know musically or poetry or whatever we're doing you know you just carry it with you and so it's like what I do or try to be I take that with me because I know they were so great it inspires me to be great also whichever field I'm going to go into or whatever I'm choosing to do, you know, because I, I know how special he was. I know how special, you know, my father was, you know, in his field. So 
you know, I just strive to carry that with me because it's important. It's our family. It's my legacy. So did Bob ever speak about your dad's work and what he did for music with the likes of artists such as Little Richard and Sam Cooke and Quincy Jones and so on and so forth? Was there ever a conversation about your dad's work that Bob had? Um, no, because I don't think they've ever, they ever met. Um, you know, my father was born in Seattle and that's where he started his musical career. Right. And he moved in, moved to Los Angeles and began working for specialty records as an A&R man. And they were already, you know, on two different, in two different places, in two different fields, even though it was an artistic field, but they just never met, you know? So, but I just, I carry both from my dad bumps and from Uncle Robert and from all the other people in my family who are really creative and smart. You know, that's who I'm comprised of. And, you know, that's what makes me, you know, Kelly Lee. And what an amazing legacy your dad leaves behind himself. Can you talk about some of those records your dad had a hand in the making of and, and some of those songs that your dad had written? Sure. Um, my father is the late Bumps Blackwell. Um, he started his career in Seattle. Um, he had three bands, um, the Bumps Blackwell Junior Orchestra, the Bumps Blackwell Band, and the Bumps Blackwell Orchestra. Quincy Jones, when he was 14, was my father's trumpet player and Ray wow. Charles was my father's piano player. Wow. My father also gave Jimi Hendrix his very first professional job. Wow. Um, daddy's worked with <laughs> Herb Albert and Lou Adler. Um, he's produced for Johnny Guitar Watson, the original Gangsta of Love Keen Sessions. He's produced for Bob Dylan. Um, Shot of Love is the title cut of that album. Um, he's produced for the Turks, the Valiants, Patience Valentine, Dr. John, uh, Guitar Slim, and uh, the songs he's done for Little Richard, who he was his manager, his producer, and co-writer. Uh, it was Long Tall Sally, Rip It Up, Ready Teddy, and he, he was the producer of Tutti Fruity. And for Sam Cooke, who he managed and produced for, it was You Send Me, and Everybody Loves to Cha-Cha-Cha. And his orchestra is um, like for uh, Love You Most of All. He does, he's done a lot of stuff, you know, with Sam, like in the production part. He's worked with Jesse Belvin. Um, he's worked with Roy uh, Montrell. Just so many people. Legendary. You know, it's, it's really amazing of all of that. I'm still learning about my father, you know, as I go. Because I have people who are helping me and shoot me little things. Kelly, your dad did this. Kelly, your dad did that. And so I'm excited to learn, you know, more about him as I go through this journey. What's it like being a kid back then and being around your dad? Talk about those memories of perhaps being on a road and being in the studio as a kid. Well, I, w I lived here in New Orleans and my father lived in L.A., so I would go during the summers. Um, he okay. would have a lot of uh, sessions at his house. You know, students would come over. There was music all the time. And the recording studios were really good. You know, I was kind of young, heading into my teens. Um, it was interesting because I had never been in, in the studio before. He was a very stern person, uh, very serious when he was doing his music and also when he was teaching. Everybody was considered a student, even me. You know, you know, I wasn't, you know, doing that part of it. I was still considered a student. And, you know, he was very, um, you know, impatient. He was blind toward the end of my life. I mean, end of his life. I'm sorry. And uh, so everyone was a little different because he had no patience 
when he could see, so he really didn't have any. <laughs> he couldn't. <laughs> that was an extremely difficult thing, but I understood it because he was a perfectionist. And in some respects, you know, my father liked the mistakes that happened in studios. You know, he was the That's kind of person. He was the kind of person who, um, you know, uh, I saw him conducting when he went. I didn't go to. I wasn't uh, with him and Richard when they were in Wembley at Wembley. But there was a session going on, a, a rehearsal, and um, the, the drummer just stopped drumming. And my dad was like, what are you doing? And he was like, well, I messed up. He said, don't ever stop. Always keep going. He said, the audience will never know you've messed up if you keep going. Because they don't know one from, from one thing from another, which is really supposed to be playing. Amazing. You know, but he just enjoyed that kind of thing, you know. So sometimes the mistakes were good. And then other times he wanted to redo it over and over till he got it how he wanted it. But it, I guess it was just his mood and how he was feeling and what he felt about that song that was going on. Yeah. Amazing. Can you talk about some of the music being played in your house growing up? Who are some of the artists you're being exposed to at this time? Yeah. Um, I grew up with the average white band. I grew up with Miles Davis. Cannonball Adderley, the Coasters, um, um, the Sugar Hill Gang, whoever <laughs> you know was was bumping yeah. at that time. You know, if and you know Little Richard stuff. Um, we did gospel music in my house, um, pop music, whatever you know was really going on. But a lot, a lot of R and B, like the OJ's, the Stylistics, the Delphonics, the Shy Lights. You know, people like that because that's what um, was you know, what was really good to my ears. And that was but, a reflection of that time back then, wasn't it? Right. And, you know, I also, you know, grew up listening, you know, to Glenn Miller. You know, I, I grew yeah. up listening, you know, to doo-wop, swing. I was just exposed to everything. And that's a, it was a beautiful thing to have that going on in my house. So I still do that today. You nice. know, I I play my turntable. I've got everything. You know, from swing, bebop, doo-wop, you know, R&B, country. So, and that's what I've learned from my parents. What are your thoughts on your uncle's influence on hip hop? I think everybody pulls from something. And I think artists, you know, if they're really into it, into their craft, they know where to go to get inspiration. And I, that's his, his work. It's inspirational to other artists, you know, who are yeah. coming up, who are older, you know, who are still producing music. You know, that's where they go to find their inspiration. So I, I know he's just crossed, you know, different you know, barriers and lines with different artists because they see how intense and how serious, you know, and how incredible his words are. And that's what they pull from it. Is there a specific myth about Bob's life you find yourself having to debunk more than any other myth about your uncle? Um, recently, someone uh, put a thing that I don't really believe he took a 10-year vow of silence. 
I'm like, I can honestly see my uncle doing that. You know, he took a 10-year vow of silence. That happened. Vow of silence. And people are like, oh, no, he couldn't do that. I'm like, obviously, you didn't, know, you didn't know my uncle. And who are you to tell me that he didn't do it? Were you there? Right. You know? Exactly. So th that's always the, the best one that I get. You know, people always go, well, how could he do that? I'm like, because he was Bob Kaufman. You know, that's how he could do it. How would you like Bob Kaufman and your dad's contribution to art to be remembered and celebrated? As two very extraordinary men who um, are very much part of the musical and cultural fabric of this country and how important their work is and will always be. That's how I would like them to be seen and to be remembered. What else are we going to do, man? We're going to do something nice for these people. It is. It's my religion, too. All right. We're going to do, I'm going to do a poem now. The title of the poem is Hallelujah, I Love Jazz. Openly, gamma rays washed over me. Fidgets with hidden crests. The fickle house guests giving heartfelt thanks. Titanic sank because black people weren't allowed on it. How's that for power? Spirits get hungry and credentials get devoured. Halfway there, they feeling laissez-faire. Personally, I'm more hands-on. I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh! You're wrong! <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people thought you whipped me where you were!